Thank you for streaming the audio messages of the Fountain Church. Called us to live an uncommon life in a very common world. And kind of the key verse from this is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, And so, dear brothers, I plead with you to give your bodies to God, because all that he's done for you. Let them be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, the kind that he will find acceptable. And this is really the truly way to worship him. And really, verse 2 is what I want to highlight. He goes on to say, in light of all that God has done for us, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. God just doesn't want to change you. God wants to transform you. Change, you can always change back. Transformation, like a, a caterpillar to a butterfly, there is no going back. Are you guys tracking with that? God wants to transform us from the inside out. And he goes on to say, this is the reason why. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I want to speak to you today from the subject of an uncommon authority, an uncommon authority. Would you pray with me? Father, in Jesus' name, thank you so much, God, for this incredible day. I just desperately need your help this morning. I pray that every word from my mouth would be from your heart. God, I thank you for your great grace on our life. God, I thank you for your grace on our church. Lord, would you speak to us in a very real way and break down some barriers today that only you can break down. In Jesus' name, and if you agree with that, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. Well, I, I want to start off uh, today with, with a quick story uh, that Mark Batterson tells. He's an author, pastor, in his book, The Whisper. And he tells a story uh, about uh, an opera singer who really started having some difficulty hitting some of the same notes that he used to hit that were clearly in his range that he had no problem uh, tackling before. He was having some challenges there, and he could not for the life of him hit those notes. Well, he went to a plethora of other doctors, and they pretty much declared that it was a vocal issue. But then he went to see this guy. Let me show you a picture of him. His name is Dr. Tomatis. And Dr. Tomatis is an otolaryngologist. Uh, say that 10 times fast, you can't. And Dr. Tomatis had a different point of view. He suspected something else was happening, so he connected this opera singer to something called a sonometer. Sum I don't know what in the world that is, uh, but apparently it got, we got some great research from it. So he connects this opera singer to this synonymer, and he, and he finds out, he, he makes the discovery that an opera singer, their vocal range and their volume, when they're belting their lungs out, can hit about 140 decibels per meter. That is very loud, ladies and gentlemen. That is, a, that is louder than a jet taking off from an aircraft carrier. And so, he re, so they came to the conclusion uh, uh, and they figured out what had happened to this opera singer is that he had become deaf. He had been deafened by his own voice. You could imagine 140 decibels ringing inside of your skull. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of situations and circumstances in our life. Things like uh, we think we have emotional problems. We think we have spiritual problems. We think we, we have... Um, communication problems, and all these, uh, a list of problems that we can go, that we can talk about. But I, I think underneath all of this, underneath all of these things, I wonder if it's not an emotional problem that we have. I wonder if it's not a spiritual 
problem that we have. I wonder if it's a hearing problem. Because sometimes you and I, we have the potential to be deafened to the voice of God through a plethora of other voices that are screaming in our head. Some of those voices could just be our own critical voice. We just kind of feel and we kind of sense um, maybe we're down on ourselves or maybe we have a lot of doubts or there, there's some skepticism in our mind that's crowding out the voice of God. Maybe, maybe it's, it's culture and just the world that we live in. There's so much noise. There's so much happening around us that it's really easy with all the noise to grow deafened, to, to be deafened to the voice of God. What about the enemy? I think the enemy works really, really hard. Deceptive voices, lying voices, um, shame, guilt, condemnation type voices that have the potential to deafen us to the voice of God. And the voice of God is the voice we really need to lean into. It's, it's his voice where there's grace and truth. It's in his voice where there's, there's love. It's in his voice where there's power. It's in his voice where really all things consist in what God has to say. And so, so here, here's the problem is that if you and I cannot hear God's voice, we're going to be in some trouble. And it's really hard. It's really hard for us. It's really, really hard for us to reproduce something we can't hear. It's really hard for a singer to reproduce a tone that they can't grasp. And so the reason why that's so detrimental is because if we can't hear God's voice, we will miss out on God's will. And just as we read, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will for our lives. What I love about that verse in Romans chapter 12 is it shows how involved God really wants to be in every aspect of our life. Now, some would say that's a little bit restrictive and controlling, but I would say it's the exact opposite. Um, it's no different than uh, my kid wanting to run and play in the street. Uh, there's no way that we would call that freedom, at least anybody with sense. It's within the safety of the parents' boundaries that they're really actually free. And God has a blueprint for life. God just didn't create us and then leave us here to try to figure it out on our own. He has a blueprint for sex. He has a blueprint for relationships. He has a blueprint for finances. I mean, every single aspect of our life, God has a blueprint for. But if we can't hear him, we're going to miss it. And can I just tell you, his will for our life, it's not restrictive. It's good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. Have we been deafened to God's voice through a plethora of other voices screaming around us, screaming on the inside of us? What's so interesting about this topic is anytime you talk about hearing God, some of you guys may be asking, how in the world do I hear God? Like, how do you hear from God? How does that even work? Well, let me, let me just give you a couple of quick examples. Number one, God can speak to you through dreams. God can speak to you through promptings. God can speak to you um, through people. God can speak to you through pain. How many of you guys know God can speak through some pain? God can speak to you through closed doors, through open doors. God can speak to you in a way that I can't even describe to you because he knows the number to your heart better than anybody else, uh, better than anybody else. And so he knows how to get your attention. He knows how to speak to you. However, the number one way God is going to speak to us is, gonna, is, is through his word, is through the Bible. Not only is that the number one way God is going to speak to us, but it's also the number one filter that we filter all those other ways through to make sure that they're consistent with who God is and with what God is really speaking. Are you guys tracking with that? 
And so if, if I was the enemy of your soul, if I was the devil, right, and the devil is not some guy with a couple of horns and a pitchfork. There's a real enemy for your soul. He's bent on making sure that your life uh, is not abundant. He's bent on stealing, killing, and destroying. But if I was the devil, that's the place I would go after. I would go after the very foundation, the, very, the, the one thing that we filter everything else through. If I was the devil, I would do whatever I could to distract you from and keep you from the reality and the truth and the power that lies in Scripture. I would do anything that I could to make the Bible an option in your life, just not the authority of your life. Are you guys tracking with that? So many people, the, the Bible, it's, it's, a, it's an option, but it's not the authority. And, and I think that he works so hard on this area, and it's because he knows the Bible better than anybody else. And he knows this passage very well in Hebrews chapter 4. Let me show you what he says. He says, uh, the word says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our inmost thoughts and desires. See, if there's one thing that the enemy knows is he knows that God's word is alive. God's word is active. And God's word has the, the potential to change you in such a way and transform you in such a way that you're never the same. That when you're exposed to the truth, the power, and the grace found in God's word, I'm telling you, he knows that you will never be the same and you will be a vital threat to his kingdom. And so there, there's a lot of different ways that we can take this message today. But I think there's a voice in our culture that's really contesting the reliability of the Bible. I think there's a voice in our scripture that many of us, uh, we find ourselves distracted or disconnected and maybe not picking up our Bible because there's some arguments that maybe we've heard, that maybe we have in our own hearts and minds. And, and I think one of the key arguments is, is the Bible really reliable? Like, can I really believe that it's everything that God says? Can I really believe, like, this is the word of God? And so I would tell you, I would tell you too that the Bible is reliable, and I want to give you a few reasons why. This isn't going to solve everybody's problems today. We're going to look at a 30,000-foot view, but I, I want to take a, a little bit of time and address some of, the, some of these critics that we find both within our, our own hearts and minds and also within our culture. So the question, is the Bible reliable? And I would say, yes, the Bible is absolutely reliable. And number one, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to jot this down. It's because it's historically accurate. The Bible is historically accurate. Now, this really goes against those who look at the Bible as being a book full of great principles. But come on, man, the stories. Like, are they really legit? I mean, Jonah being in the belly of a fish, Noah's Ark. I mean, I can extract some good principles from the Bible, but I just don't know if I can buy into all of those stories. Well, the, the truth of the matter is the Bible is, is not just a book of principles. The Bible is the very word of God, which not only makes it right, but makes it true. Look what the psalmist says. Let me show you what the psalmist says. The psalmist says this, for the word of the Lord is right. There's a lot of great principles, a lot of right teaching, but it's also true. Now, I know that voice kind of probably clicked off in your head and said, well, you're using the Bible, number one, to confirm the Bible. 
but, but maybe that's true for you, but not true for me. That's, we live in a culture that really plays around with this idea of relativism, meaning something could be true for you, but, but it may not be true for me, and there's really no such thing as absolute truth. But that statement, unfortunately, it, it kind of jumps off of a cliff. Because if there's no such thing as absolute truth, then that statement is an absolute statement, therefore it's not true. And so you really can't get around truth, no matter how you try to slice it and dice it. The word of the Lord is right, and it's true. Not just true for me, but true for everyone. You say, that is a bold claim. If somebody were to ask me today, why are you a Christian? I would not tell them because my mom was a Christian, or because I grew up in church, or because I had this cool experience with God in a worship service. I would tell them that I'm a Christian because it's truth. You say, well, how do you know it's true. Well, let's just like jump outside of the Bible and just look at history for a moment. Anytime historians were trying to um, declare something as historically accurate, it would go through a, 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 a litany of three tests. And if you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. The first test is the eyewitness accounts. The eyewitness accounts. Many times people think that Christianity is a blind faith. But let's take the resurrection, for example. Paul's argument for the resurrection wasn't, hey, um, just believe that maybe, that maybe this guy rose from the dead. And if you believe really, really hard, then maybe your life will change. Just try to believe. That was not Paul's argument. First of all, Paul the apostle was one of the most educated, one of the most educated religious leaders in the first century. I mean, he was at the top of his class. He hated Christianity. He refuted Christianity at every bout. However, he had an encounter with the risen Savior that was undeniable. And so, but, but, but that's, you could say, well, that was Paul's experience. But that, that's true. But that wasn't Paul's argument. Paul's argument when they came, when Paul's argument for the resurrection, when people would come, he would tell them this. He would say, hey, well, Jesus appeared first to Peter. And then he appeared to the 12, and we're like, okay, of course, he appeared to the 12 disciples. But then look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. Now, in 500 people, you're going to get a couple of wackos, but not 500. <laughs> 500 people are not hallucinating at one time. That wouldn't even, if 500 people saw something, there would not even be a case in our courts. Most of whom are still living. So Paul wasn't, you know, declaring to just trust blindly in this maybe resurrected Savior. He said, man, go ask these 500 people because a lot of them are still alive. Eyewitness accounts, though some had fallen asleep. Not to mention, let's take the New Testament, the reliability of the New Testament. You know, the New Testament was written um, com fully completed 70 years after the crucifixion, written within the same time frame as all these witnesses who were alive. And there were massive copies made of the New Testament. We're going to talk about that in just, just a couple of minutes. Massive copies made. And you say, well, what does that even mean? How, how does that even matter? Well, there were so many eyewitnesses still alive, it would have been easy to refute anything that was false. Because the, the closer that a writing is historically to the original event is, is the more accurate it's declared. And so it would have been so easy for people to refute this, but we do not have one ancient writing in the first century refuting the New Testament. It's reliable. 
You, you take, uh, for instance, uh, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You, you look at how, how incredibly harmonious they are, how incredibly honest they are to one another, yet they all speak independently. Meaning there, there's, there's not like this perfect story woven through, um, you, you know, every uh, detail. They're all saying it the same way. Now, in a, court, in, in, a, in a crime investigation scene, if a police officer is interviewing a bunch of witnesses and they all say the exact same thing, they're going to know that it's fixed. They're going to know that it's rigged. But with the Gospels, we see harmony. We see them running the same race, but Mark's giving his perspective. Matthew's giving his, and, and, and the reliability and the honesty. I mean, if you're writing, if you're trying to make something up, why would you make yourself look like an idiot? Number one, why would you have women find, find the empty tomb first? Because women's testimony in this first century wasn't even valid. There's just an honesty and a harmony and a clarity woven throughout all of these. These are just a few things, guys. I'm scratching the surface. But if you do your homework, you're going to find out a whole lot more. And it's probably um, going to blow your mind in a lot of different ways. But not only do they take eyewitness accounts into consideration if, when they're trying to verify something historically accurate. But number two um, is that the Bible is re recorded and copied with extreme care. Like they want to see how was this documented? How in the world was this transcribed? Now I think God is a genius. I mean he's the creator of all things. He's God. And he entrusted the Jewish people to, to jot down and to scribe his word. Now, Jewish scribes, you got to understand, they were the most meticulous scribes on the planet. Let me give you an example. When, they, when the first five books of the Bible, as, as, as the scribes would pen, it's called the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible is called the Pentateuch. Whenever the scribes were transcribing the Pentateuch, they did not scribe word for word. They scribed letter by letter. And this is what they would do, is they would take one of those books, they would scribe letter by letter, and they knew the letter in the middle of that book. In the middle of every book, they knew the letter, uh, they knew the exact letter. And what they would do is when they were finished with the book, they would count backwards and they would count forwards. And if it was off by one letter, they would scrap the whole thing. And so a, a lot of times when when we think about the Bible being translated, one of the common critics or one of the common myths is that it's like the telephone game. Let me show you a picture of this. This is how people describe how the Bible was translated. It goes from, uh, from the manuscripts and it's told to a person, it's told to another 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 person. And by the time it gets down here, we get the Bible. It's false. That's not true. Number one, it doesn't happen through oral transmission. And any time that they were going to translate the Bible into a different language. They don't start with the latest translation. They go back to the original text. It looks a little bit more like this. They go back to the, to the reliable manuscripts, our most reliable manuscripts, and they transcribe every single language from those manuscripts. Not from word of mouth, getting passed down, passed down. People that say that do not know what they're talking about. And even every historian outside of Christianity would agree with me. And so, and so whether you're reading it in Korean or Russian or any other language, it's coming from our most reliable manuscripts. Now, this isn't just one manuscript that we're looking at. Let me, let me break this down. 
The New Testament alone has 5,700 reliable manuscripts in Greek, Greek alone. In Latin, there's 10,000. Between Coptic, Syriac, and Armenian languages, there's 15 to 20. So we have about 25,000 that are completely harmonious, completely say the same thing with only a 5% variance, meaning that makes it 99.5% accurate, not from a Christian standpoint, from a historical standpoint. And the 5% variance, you guys got to hear this, it really consists of, of spelling, it, it consists of punctuation, and the one percent variance that actually changes uh, some of the sentences has nothing to do with our doctrine, has nothing to do with the context. For example, I used a passage last week, Mark chapter 9. Jesus was talking about casting out a demon, and he said, this kind does not come out but by prayer. Well, later manuscripts added fasting. It does not change the context of the passage or the doctrine but the most earliest reliable manuscripts do not have fasting in it. And so you know what that means is the manuscripts that, that do have that 1% variance, we know what they are. And they're tested and approved by the original manuscripts. So, so get this in your mind. Let me put this in perspective. When, when it comes to, uh, to, to Plato, we have about seven copies in regards to Plato's writing. When it comes to Julius Caesar's galactic battles, we have ten. When it comes to Homer of Gilead, we have 643 documents. When it comes to the New Testament, we have almost over 25,000. It is considered to be the most historically accurate document of its day. So, so when, we're, when they're transcribing, it's not what you think. It's not this telephone game just kind of going down the line. In fact... In the late 1940s, the Dead Sea Scrolls were recovered. And look at this. Let me show you this picture of, of the, the scroll of Isaiah. This was found. Jackie and I actually had the privilege of being in Israel and, and going to the exact location where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found by some Bedouin shepherds. And this manuscript of Isaiah, the full scroll of Isaiah, this, one, this particular one was a thousand years earlier. This is the Old Testament. A thousand years earlier than the, 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 the most recent document we have, it dated a thousand years back, and it was completely the same. Yeah. Historians were flipping out. Everybody that was trying to, like, had a little angst against Christianity, that day was like, oh, gosh. <laughs> a thousand-year gap, completely harmonious. This is amazing. But it's not just, it's, it's not just um, the fact that it was copied with great care. And, 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 and translated with great care. But also, one of the things that they're looking for for historical, uh, uh, for, for something to be historically accurate is archaeological confirmation. This is huge. Now, th this, is, this is a fun one. You know, back in the day, up until the early 1900s, there was a Hittite empire that the Bible speaks of that could not be found. A Hittite empire. You can go do your research on all this. You can quote me, take me, go do your research on all this. A Hittite empire, so was not found, uh, or up until the 1900s, it had never been discovered. And so a lot of excavations started happening in the 1900s, a lot of things being uncovered. And it was so funny because up until that point, even Christians were like, I guess the Bible missed it. We have no recollection. We have all these other empires that are verified except the Hittite empire. 
early 1900s, excavators found an overwhelming spot where it, it revealed the, the Hittite Empire like crazy. Incredible. Let me, let me bring it up a little bit closer to speed. Later in the 19th in the 19th century, uh, the Pool of Bethesda, I've actually seen it with my own eyes in Israel. For the longest time, they thought that John's gospel was, was, was either in air or was simply using the Pool of Bethesda as a metaphor because they couldn't find it. 19th century, what happens? Excavation, they found it. Not only did they find it, but it was exactly how John had described it. Archaeologists, listen, the, the more and more that things are uncovered, it's not contradicting the Bible. It's confirming the Bible. Even though it's not a history book, it contains an incredible amount of history. But, but let's move on. It's not just historically accurate, but what about scientifically accurate? You say, well, what do you mean scientifically accurate? You know what's so funny is in our culture today, we separate God and science. But, but when you look back to the original fathers that who we'd call fathers of science, um, they were all theists, meaning they believed in God, or they were followers of Christ. Let me give you an example, Newton. Newton wrote more about God than he did physics. And so for some reason, like, we have this disconnect uh, in our day between science and God but in all reality, even scientifically, even science has never contradicted the scriptures. And as advanced and as more and more understanding that we gain, it just does exactly what archaeology does. It just confirms more and more of everything that's written in the scriptures. Now, the scriptures don't contain, it's not a science book, so it doesn't have maybe a lot of the science language. But we're going to have some fun with this. And I want to show you a few things. But look with me at Psalms chapter 1, or Psalms chapter 148. I love this, this passage. It says, let everything created give praise to the Lord, for he has issued his command. And they came into being. He set them in place forever and ever. His decree will never be revoked. All of the laws, all of the universe our bodies, as complex as they are, God made all this from medical science to the universe to the laws. God created all these things. And science has tried so hard to prove him wrong. Let me give you an example. 1861, French Academy of Science declared 51 incontrovertible scientific facts that prove the Bible wrong. Today, all of those controvertible facts have been controvertible, because they've all been refuted and considered as false. But see, you see, science is, is constantly changing. I mean, we're discovering, we're learning, you know, more and more. Like if you go back to your third grade history book or a science book, they're probably not using that today, right? Because we're learning, hey, something's worked. We're discovering this and, oh, that makes sense for that. And, but anybody that's anything scientific that's, been, that's tried to prove the Bible in air has fallen flat on its face. God made all of this stuff. He gets it. Like, let me give you, let me say this. It's not just what the Bible says in regards to, to, to scientific things. It's what it doesn't say. Because there was a science in the day of the Bible. And, and you never see those things or, or, or those ideologies creeping into the scriptures. It was like God was looking at the people of the day saying, if you would just like pay attention to my word, it might help you on your science. Let me give you an example. 
Uh, one of the, the classic scientific theories in the Bible times was that the earth has to be held up. The Greeks believed that, um, that the earth was held up by the Greek god Atlas. And so you kind of see that, that super swole guy that all of us men wish that we looked like holding up the world. That's what, that's what they thought. And, and the Hindu, um, in the Hindu community, they believe that the world sat on an elephant, which stood on top of a sea turtle, which stood on top of a sea snake, and that's how everything, that's how we spin and move and all of that stuff. But what about the Egyptians? I mean, the Egyptians were, were some of the most brilliant people of their day. We look back and we're like, we look at their technology and we almost laughed when there will be a day that people will look at our stuff and laugh as well. But the Egyptians believe that the world sat on five pillars, five pillars. What's so interesting about the Egyptians is Moses. Moses was adopted into Pharaoh's family as a grandson. Moses' mom put him in the Nile River in a little basket. Pharaoh's daughter found him, and he was raised and trained in the ways of the Egyptians, brilliant, educated, and Moses wrote five books. God used Moses to write five books of the Old Testament, and you never see any of their language or science or anything mentioned, maybe because Moses wasn't writing that. But you don't see anything of their belief system mentioned. In fact, if they were to go to the oldest book of the Bible, it's not in chronological order, and maybe some of you guys didn't know this. I'm going to give you some Bible facts today. A Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. And if they would just go back to Job in that moment, look what they would have found. Let me show you. That he spreads out the northern skies over empty space and that he suspends the earth over nothing. Guys, it was always there. It was always there. What about this one? This was a, a, a pretty interesting scientific fact from the Bible days was that the number of stars could be counted. There was a man by the name of Hipparticus who counted or declared that he could count all the stars, that he counted all the stars, and it equaled up to 1,022. This was 150 B.C. 300 years later, a man by the name of Ptolemy, which is still considered one of the famous astronomers, he said, you got it wrong, bro. I counted there is 1,026, you missed it by four. <laughs> now, obviously, we know today, and with our technology, we've discovered you cannot count the stars. But if they would have just looked 2,600 years before in the book of Jeremiah, look what they would have found. God says it very clearly. The stars of the sky cannot be counted. <laughs> it's like, man, it's, it's always been there. What about humoralism? Anybody ever, let's get into like the medical science of the day. Anybody ever heard of humoralism? Of course, it's a very popular word. I mean, all of us should know about humoralism, right? But the, the humoralism was invented by a, a guy by the name of Hippocrates, which was a Greek doctor, if you would say. Um, and, and what he kind of, his theory was, is that the body, if it's sick or you're emotionally distressed, it's because one of four reasons. It's either black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, or blood. You either have too much or too little of one of those. And so, for, for example, George Washington, um, he actually died in regard to this medical theory. Because what they would believe, if you had too much, if you were sick, and at certain conditions, they would declare that maybe you had too much blood. 
And so what they would do is they would do what's called bloodletting, is they would cut you open and they would let your blood spill out, drain it out of your body. On the third time they did that to George Washington, he died. And, and you would think, I mean, you would think that, oh, man, why would you just cut yourself and let the blood flow out? Well, it was considered, and they tied it to emotional illness. They tied it to temperament. And they try to use these four things to say if you were depressed or if you were melancholy, it's still because of one of these four things. But, man, if they would have just looked in Leviticus, they would have realized that for the life of the body is in its blood. Like today, when, when people are sick in their blood, we don't drain it out. We transfuse it. We give them more blood. Are you tracking with that? Well, what about the bubonic plague? What about the black plague that, that went through Europe? They had no idea that people could be contagious. One in four people died during that season. Could you imagine that? 25% of the population. All because they didn't have this concept of germs or, or, or being contagious. But, man, if they would have just looked back in Leviticus... The priest would quarantine a person for seven days. If somebody had a sore in their body, he, they would quarantine the person for seven days. They'd come back seven days later, examine it. If it was still there, they would quarantine them another seven days, and they'd come back. If it was going away after the third time, they would then declare that person clean. If it wasn't going away, they would continue to keep that person on the outs. And I know this is kind of fun, but I'm just saying that nothing, <laughs> there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And, and, and in all reality, let me show you this passage found in Psalms. This is the truth, is that the words of the Lord are flawless. They are like silver purified in the crucible, like gold refined seven times. They're flawless. And you can try to test it. Everybody that has contended with the Bible has either died of insanity. Literally, people have lost their minds trying to disprove the Bible. Or they've bowed their knee. Because they cannot deny the evidence. Let me give you one more and then we're going to wrap up. It's not just historically accurate. It's not just scientifically accurate. But it's also prophetically accurate. Now this is huge. Because this is one of, the, one of the, the, the critical voices in our day would say something like this. Well, man wrote it. <laughs> My pastor used to always say, as opposed to who? <laughs> man wrote the Bible. Now, a lot of times we think that the Bible was just written straight through. But let me remind you, it's 66 books written by over 40 different writers, all throughout different times and spans of history, yet all are completely harmonious, pointing to one reality, and that's Jesus. That alone is a miracle. So for, you, for somebody to think that you just kind of read through your Bible and, and, and it's just somebody started at Genesis and just went all the way through, that's just, they just, unfortunately, they're just not educated in regards to what the Bible's all about. So imagine that, over 40 different authors, over 66 books written over uh, periods of hundreds of years, sometimes in span, and yet all continuously, harmoniously point to the same person of Jesus, telling the same story. It's just amazing, maybe because it wasn't men that was writing it, but rather God inspiring men to, to pen it down. Now, but let's just say, okay, if men were writing it, it would be pretty bold to put prophecy in your writings, meaning things that you are declaring are going to come to pass. There are over a thousand prophecies written in the scriptures. And a, and a prophecy written in scripture, it's basically the prophet said, this is what God says, this is what's going to happen, and then it does. Or it doesn't. 
Now, if one of those prophecies were, you know, fell off a cliff and was not fulfilled, it would nullify the entire thing. So it'd be pretty bold for people to just say, hey, let's write a thousand prophecies. I think our chances are pretty good, right? No way. And when it comes to Jesus alone, 300 prophecies were written about Jesus. The last one was prophesied 400 years before Jesus even was born of the Virgin Mary. And so, so you just imagine this. Well, how many of them have come true? All of them except a few that are getting ready to, to come through in these end times that we're living in. And you want to make sure that you understand that very clearly. But let's just look at Jesus, for example. Jesus fulfilled every prophecy that was written about him. And there was a guy by the name of Dr. Stoner. This is a classic argument. Maybe you've heard it before if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not, awesome. This is going to be great for the first time. A, a, a guy by the name of Dr. Stoner, they, he, he, got a, he got together uh, several scientists, and they, they came together and asked the question, what would be the probability of Jesus fulfilling all of these prophecies? Because the prophecies that were written about Jesus were very specific, like where he would live, where he would be born the things that would happen during his ministry, even how he died. King David, King David prophesied crucifixion before crucifixion even existed. I mean, the Roman Empire wasn't even, wasn't even a, didn't even rise up yet. I mean, there was, they didn't exist. And so the prophecies are super specific. And what are the chances of one person fulfilling all of those prophecies? Well, they did the probability, and they declared that one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies, eight of the 300, is about 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's his big number on the bottom. That's the big number on the bottom. I'm not even sure how to, like, pronounce that. <laughs> but that's a lot. But let me help you understand it. This number right here would be as if you filled the state of Texas two feet in silver dollars got somebody and blindfolded them, dropped them in by way of helicopter, and had them point to the place where there was one of those silver dollars marked with a Sharpie and pull that out of the rubble. Insanity. Basically, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. But that's just 10. Let's look at 16. What if he just fulfilled 16 of them, 1 in 10 to the 45th power? Well, let's step it up. What about 48, 1 in 10 to the 157th power? You're like into neurons there or something. That's like, you're just way out into oblivion. You say, man, how is this even possible? Let me show you 2 Peter. We're almost done. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, it's possible because prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Look what Jesus says about the Old Testament. He says it like this. He says, but all of this is happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. And the scriptures of Jesus' day was only the Old Testament. And so Jesus was validating everything that they said, and Jesus fulfilled, fulfilled, except he's coming back again, and there's a few more prophecies to be fulfilled. 
But imagine, you say, why are you doing this today? Like, I know I could preach a message on a bunch of different topics and a bunch of different things. But I just, I want to get underneath it all. I think sometimes we're, 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 we're not tapping into the scriptures because we have some false arguments that can be easily refuted. That th- today, this isn't going to solve your issue of not reading your Bible, but I'm hoping it inspires you to say, maybe I need to give it a second look. Maybe I need to, to, to make it a little bit more of a priority. For many of us, far too many of us, the Bible is an option in our life, but not the authority of our life. And so you say, but why are you doing this? And it's found in John in the, in the Gospel of John, this is why I'm doing this. Because Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I want you to walk in freedom. I want you to live in God's perfect, good, and pleasing will for your life. And his blueprint, and Cam, you could come up for me. I, I, I want to close with this. There was a man by the name of Noah. He lived in a culture True story, lived in a culture that nobody wanted to hear from God. Noah was the uncommon dude on the planet that said, God, you have my ear. And I think about Noah. God said, Noah, I'm getting ready to destroy everything. It's get, it, the, the earth is about to flood. Noah's like, what does that even mean? Water's going to come from the sky. What does that even mean? Because at that time, the, water had, the earth was watered from the ground up. Rain had never fallen from the sky. And then he gives Noah this incredible blueprint to build this boat in the middle of a desert. And I thought, man, God was so specific when it came to the blueprint of this boat. We may be living in a desert land spiritually, but God, how much more specific is God speaking in regards to the blueprint of how we build our life? Noah listened to God. He heard him. You know the, 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 the word for obey in Latin or the word for hear in, or the word for obey in Latin, it means to lend your ear. And Noah said, you got my ear, God. You got my ear. And what happened? Him and his family sailed safely while everything else tanked and crashed. I'm not saying it was, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that it was the most popular thing for Noah to, to do that. But what I'm saying is it's just because it's uncommon doesn't make it untrue. Just because everything around us may be trying to refute the very essence of life, the very essence of truth, doesn't make it not true. Let me, let me leave you with, with this story. And it's the story of the Mokin. December 2004, nine point something earthquake on the Richter scale hit the Indian Ocean. The Mokin are an Austrian people group that that live on, on some of the outskirts of, of the islands of, of Thailand. And pretty much they live in the sea. They're, they're called like the people of the sea. Their kids learn to swim before they walk. They see twice as better underwater than you and I would. And that day that the tsunami hit, 200, about 240 to 250,000 people lost their life. But the Mokin, none of, there was no casualties. Because they were able to, to, they were able to read the waves like we read books. And they looked at the trajectory, they looked at the waves, they looked at how things were forming. And those who were closest to shore, they 
anchored their boats and they hiked to the hills. And those who were out, were out to sea, they, they, with no connection or communication, understood the rhythms of the sea. And so they pushed out further into depths that that tsunami would not come and, and hit them hard. None of the Moken people died because they understood a language that if everybody else would, uh, would have understood, they could have taken refuge. But just because this is an uncommon people group doesn't mean that their language is not important. And they were able to read the season in a way that nobody else would, and that nobody else did, and it spared a ton of lives. And so, so here, here's my, my, my question to you today, is will the word or the world be the final authority in your life? Your faith, it's not going to have to rest on the reliability of the Bible or the reliability of the resurrection. If you want evidence, there's more evidence for that than you could possibly imagine. You'll choke on the evidence. I think the real step of faith is are you able to live out what you know is true in the middle of a world that says it's not popular? That's where it's going to take real faith, and that's where it's going to determine whether the word or the world is the authority of your life. Noah built it on the word. He was spared. While the world is passing away, ladies and gentlemen, but the word of the Lord, the Bible says, will last forever. Build on the right foundation.